Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. The journey is such a beautiful thing because we are all on a journey. You want to make sure you have some kind of distribution plan, or at least have an idea of it, because you can make this really amazing film and it only gets seen by your family and friends. Old Hollywood is still intact. Every horse runs hard, but when they win, and they know it. They've got this little sass about them. It was pretty rough. I had to go into the water and with my med pack, swim to the beach, treat these guys, put them on my back, swim out to the helo. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen those before. And I said, what are those? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh my God, you didn't touch them, did you? Even if monarchs go away and we never see one again, because there never will be monarchs again if they die out, it is just a little indicator of larger threats my dad said, so what were you guys doing in the desert? I said, we were taking nude photos. Hey everyone, I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. I am back with part two of a really interesting botany talk with Jenna Irvin, who is the program manager of interpretation for the Los Angeles Natural History Museum and the Rancho La Brea Tar Pits, as well as a botany instructor and night hike leader at the Los Angeles Arboretum. She's a talented camp leader, museum instructor, classroom educator, and education specialist whose previous work experience includes Rediscover Kids Space Museum and Yosemite National Park. She specializes in project-based learning and connecting audiences and students to their environment through relatable science and stories. So in this episode, I'm just going to get right into it because there's so much here. And I hope that you listen to part one to get a little bit more immersed in your natural environment, the plants that are living around you, understand a little bit more about them. In this episode, we're going to talk about the importance of plants to our ancestors versus the importance of plants to us now because it was a different time and plants were viewed in a different way. We're going to talk about plant symbolism, how it's used in modern times, and the challenges of agriculture. And then there is the very spooky talk about serial killer plants. You can't miss that. So before I give everything away, please grab a cuppa and join Jenna Irvin and me in this latest In the Company of Friends talk. Enjoy. Well, I think too that, um, and I don't know, this is maybe an assumption on my part, that in the past, plants were a lot more important to society than they are now. And so we don't know, we walk past these plants because we're ignorant of the qualities that they hold. So we just assume a plant is a plant. I mean, I think it's true and not true. So there's two different things going on here. So we think about like our past, our ancestors and the way that they interacted with plants in the world. And they were probably, if you take a look at your like average person living and say, I don't know, like. Let's look at our average person living in California, even as little as 200 years ago. A, their demographic would probably be very different, right? And then B, 
yes, they would have a very different relationship with plants because they would most likely either be a farmer or they would have some sort of subsistence relationship with the plants around them. And there, of course, is like cities in California 200 years ago, but they were definitely very small, right? So a lot more people lived in like rural environments and were just kind of surrounded by a lot more greenery on your everyday life and could name a bunch of stuff that we wouldn't be able to name today. And that is true. Like plants were really important to people. And I couldn't say this, like I cannot walk back into somebody's life 200 years ago and say if they had a larger or like a deeper understanding of what plants meant to them than we do today. Like you can't really measure that. You can more measure like how many plants can somebody uh, name or like how many facts can they name about that plant. But plants are still really important to us today. And I think it's more that we don't consciously think about something as a plant. And what I mean by that, because, you know, I live here in Los Angeles. And if you think about what Los Angeles looks like to somebody who doesn't live here, like, what do you say when you imagine Los Angeles? Describe Los Angeles. Uh, imagine you you don't live here, you know nothing about it. Sprawling. Or, I mean, you've, you've never seen it in real life. So maybe sprawling. Sprawling, but, well, okay. So if I had never seen it, I could only go by what a lot of people say. And they would say lots of concrete, lots of traffic, very smoggy, skyscrapers everywhere. But I, you know, I personally don't see it like that. I see a lot of open space because I tend to travel pretty much to the perimeters of it often just to go on a hike or learn about a new place. But I think that somebody who's never seen it would probably come up with that as an answer. Right. So they're kind of thinking about that city landscape. They're thinking about the the concrete and like how big it is. I mean, if we're thinking about like a postcard, look at Los Angeles, you know, what people see from movies and media, we might also talk about the beach. You talked about these like large open spaces. California is also really well known for its wine industry. And we are also really well known for, I think a lot of people think about palm trees and the tropicalness of Los Angeles, right? Right. Um, So if you see palm trees in a postcard with that cityscape behind it, you'd say LA. Or if you saw like a California coastline with wine grapes kind of moving up the side of the hill, you'd say like Napa. So we have these unofficial plant mascots for our cities and our you know municipalities. We often have our identities tied to these things, just kind of not in ways that we're super conscious of, right? Mm, the California poppy. California poppy, totally. Another great example is, uh, let's say I texted you an emoji of a peach and an eggplant. What would that tell you? A butt and a penis. <laughs> <laughs> and generally, it would be considered either very rude or a window for opportunity, right? Right. <laughs> so even though, like, we don't consciously think of this as, like, plant lore or, like, floriography, like, we haven't given it those names, that's what we are engaging in. Uh, we are, in fact, engaging in plant symbolism. So, you know, they are really deep parts of our lives. We just don't really think about them. It's in the same way fish aren't aware that they live in water, you know? Right. They're just so ubiquitous. 
it isn't until you like start to think about the world around you as if you were an alien and this is the first time you're looking at it that you're like, oh yeah, we're still really tied to our plants. Even just the kinds of plants that we plant in our like city landscapes. If you go down a city street, like if I go down my city street, I'll see a bunch of magnolia trees kind of planted around us. Mm -hmm. And we tend to plant a lot of magnolia trees because they're very showy. They have these bright white flowers. And magnolias have often been associated with, at least in the United States, the Southeast. Uh, so the United States and the Southeast. And we often think of them as symbols of like the wealth of the Southeast, especially in the antebellum era. So we kind of think of magnolias as these symbols of like grace, wealth, and even symbols of the power of plantations and colonists. And weirdly enough, they're even a symbol of like white supremacy in a way, right? If you think about like how we imagine these like magnolia laden plantations. So we've kind of like tied up our ideas of antebellum plantations and wealth together, just like kind of subconsciously in the US. Like that's just sort of what we do with magnolias. So we tend to plant them in our city streets because they make us feel bougie. They make us feel like, oh, we have these like beautiful magnolia lined streets. They're sweetly scented. They have these beautiful white flowers. This is like what bougie people have around them. And, <laughs> and we don't really like question why do we think that's bougie? Like, why do we think that? Yeah, like genteel. Why do we There's think a history there. Yeah, but there is a history there. There's like a reason why we have these little ideas about what these plants mean to us. You know what I see a lot of around here are cassia trees mm -hmm. with the big showy golden flowers and crepe myrtles. Uh, and of course, also the ornamental pear trees. Yeah. Oh, God. They're all like blooming right now. And then the ornamental pear trees. They're so beautiful. And then it's like the petals fall and it's like it's snowing. So I make that sigh and it might sound like I'm sighing and like, ah, oh, beautiful. I, the ornamental pear trees, the Bartlett pear trees mm -hmm. are a menace. They are a menace to society. Oh God! <laughs> are they are they not indigenous? No, uh, no, 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 no. They okay. are not. In fact, they are um, they are plants that's been crafted, as many of our plants are, and especially the kinds of plants that we plant in our urban environments. It's a plant that was crafted specifically for urban environments because it doesn't produce fruits. Right. And in an urban environment, one of the things you don't want to be doing a whole lot is street sweeping. So if you were to put a fruiting pear in your cityscape, you will have a lot of squished pears at some point all over the ground. So, you know, horticulturalists have come up with these non-fruiting Bartlett pears that just make flowers and they're gorgeous and they're beautiful and they make beautiful flowers. And the same reason why we love cassias and jacarandas and, you know, similar plants like that. A lot of urban trees have gorgeous blooms, and that is important to the urban landscape is to create these chances for your everyday Joe to engage in the beauty and the emotional benefits of having plants around. And that's all well and good, mm -hmm. but plants in cities require resources. We must water them. We must feed them. We must give them room. And in a place where everybody's kind of trying to get by, it would seem like it would make a lot more sense <laughs> for us to plant things that are useful 
um, or that have cultural, cultural significant cultural uses or are edible, you know, like th this is one of the big debates in like horticulture and urban gardening is like, what is a useful plant? What does that mean? And generally, most people have come to the conclusion that that does not mean the Bartlett pear. Oh, no. <laughs> Why? It just uses a lot of water. It uses a lot of water. It creates so much pollen. Um, it smells weird. Um, and, yeah, and it uh, and it doesn't do the thing that pears do, right? Right. It doesn't make pears, so it's it's like pretty, but just for prettiness's sake, you know. Then again, like urban trees, even the sillier ones, like the Bartlett pear, still provide a lot of climatic benefits to a town. Like trees in a neighborhood lower the average temperature of that neighborhood. Like that is just like a thing. And you'll even see, like, if you look at heat maps of a city, you'll see that the neighborhoods that have less trees, like are two, three, four, sometimes even five to 10 degrees warmer than the neighborhoods that do have trees. So planting trees in neighborhoods, even like silly ones, are going to be useful. It's going to be a, a plus, but it could be even more useful. You know, what? how are we using these like scant resources that we have? I am personally a big fan of pine trees. I think we don't have enough pine trees out here. <laughs> yes, they make pine needles everywhere. And yes, we would be covered in pine needles if we had just ponderosas all over the city. Yeah. But pine needles are so freaking useful. They're like good for basketry. They're native. They're good for the animals that live around here. A lot of animals use those pine needles for nests. They eat those pine nuts. Pine nuts are edible. They have cultural ties to indigenous people. You know, there's all kinds of things that you could get out of a pine tree. <laughs> and they're drought resistant. All super cool things. We don't really like pine trees. They don't make flowers. They leave a lot of needles. Pine cones are a thing. Now, are the pine cones a flower? Pine cones are not a flower. So when it comes to trees, you have two different teams. You have the gymnosperms and you have the angiosperms. Angiosperms are flowering plants. So think magnolia trees, think roses, right? Gymnosperm, gymnosperm literally means naked seed. So these are the things where the seeds are growing on that plant, but they don't have like a little ovary protecting it. So instead you might have like bracts that are holding those seeds in there. And a pine cone is a really good example of that. So yeah, they're, they are not flowering plants. Pine cones are not considered a flower. I still think they're pretty cool looking. I think they're pretty. Oh, I do too. Yeah. They smell so good. <laughs> Around here we have a lot of, I think they're called marine pines. There's different varieties of pines, as you know, yeah. um, and that was like the name that I saw for these, and and they're really pretty. And in the in the springtime, it was almost like a pine cone without the hard, woody, whatever. I I thought they were flowers because I always call those petals, and that was the male cone that was going to start pollinating. They were really beautiful. And so um, I thought that was great. And, you know, they actually smell good. Like you said, the ornamental pear trees don't smell good. And, and the other one that I just, I really do not like the scent of locust trees. Uh, I see. I actually like that scent a lot. Do you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess because when I was a kid, there was like a grove of locust trees kind of in the foothills of our, you know, the little mountain I lived on. Little mountain. Mm -hmm. It was a Sierra Nevada. The so little big mountain. Right. <laughs> 
but in the foothills, uh, we would drive past this grove of locust trees in the winter. And it was basically the only thing that was blooming in the winter. I mean, you could hear the bees living in this grove uh, half a mile away. You could hear the low hum of the grove. And if you walked through it, the smell would hit you like a brick wall. And I really liked that smell. I guess it kind of smelled like bees, though. So maybe it wasn't even the locust. I wonder if it was the bees. The bees, I don't mind. We had a California pepper tree that was growing in our backyard. And when it would flower, those little teeny tiny flowers, and it would just be covered in bees that were humming. And it was one of my favorite things. I would take a chair out there with a book and sit under there because it was just kind of that drone just kind of was like a brain massage to me. And we got rid of it. And what I found out quite recently were two things. Maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, I found out that California pepper trees are actually not indigenous to California. Yeah, yeah. They're from like South America or something. Yeah. Maybe Central. Yeah. I was surprised. It's closer than many plants. Yeah. Yeah. I knew the Brazilian pepper tree was not. And then I didn't know that you could eat those pepperberries. So in Costa Rica, I ordered a gin and tonic at one of the places and they brought this really fancy gin with a very thin wrapped up like a rose slice of cucumber. And then on top, they had these California pepper tree berries. They're citrusy and peppery at the same time and really super amazing. They were great in that. So last year, I picked a bunch of the berries and I've got my mortar and pestle and I ground them up and I put them in sauces and gave everything a very interesting, unique flavor. You know, a lot of these plants were food at one time and they're no longer things that we eat. And so they don't appear in a lot of foods. And people would ask me like, what did you put in here? This is really unique. Cause it's also, it wasn't just citrusy and peppery. There was like a, a perfumey element to it that was unique. They, they were really good. Yeah. Like one of the things that has come up when it comes to look, taking a closer look at the plants around you. Well, we talked a little bit about like how many are poisonous, but then mm-hmm. also how many are edible and that we really do eat a very narrow diet of kind of the same plants over and over again, just in like different iterations. Right. Um, out of all the things that are out there and also all the things that we can grow, like we're in SoCal, like we can grow anything out here, right? Mm-hmm. And often we can grow some plants out here a lot easier than we can the plants that we are used to eating, right? So like things like I, I grew some Malabar spinach a while back and that stuff was like a weed. It took <laughs> off all over my fence and it was it was everywhere. I could not contain it. Oh my God. And I had never like heard of Malabar spinach. I was just like, oh, this might be fun. Let's do a little plant adventure. I'm going to go to the Home Depot and grab something weird and plant it in my yard. <laughs> um, and you agree to regret it, huh? <laughs> uh, well, no, actually it was, it was a really fun. I was pleasantly surprised and I was pleasantly surprised by the taste of Malabar spinach. Really? Is it that different from what we get at the store? I mean, it's definitely spinachy. Um, like the the texture mouthfeel I'd say is very spinachy uh, but the taste is a little bit different yeah mm-hmm. and it's just like oh this is so easy right this is like you could have this whenever uh at least in SoCal but it's just like not really part of our diet it's not really things that we're like super attached to I don't have any like lovely childhood memories of eating Malabar spinach as like my comfort food <laughs> oh. 
I was just talking about the emotional connection that we have with food, which is why we tend to eat certain foods and maybe they're not that great for us, but we have that emotional connection. And then we have this unconscious suspicion of other foods that we're not familiar with. And we immediately think, oh, we're not going to like that because it doesn't look like anything that we're historically connected to. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, one of the catch-22s of the story of agriculture is we we try to shape the land to feed us the way we want it to feed us instead of eating what is available, if that makes sense. So a lot of the things that we eat here today are not indigenous foods to the Americas. Some of them are, right? Like we eat a lot of corn, but we also eat a lot of wheat. And there are probably better climates to plant wheat in, but here's where we are, and we like wheat. (laughs) It's everywhere. Yeah, and so this is why we do a lot of damage to our environment, trying to make it do for us what we want it to do. We want it to grow us wheat. So we will fill our soil with fertilizers and pesticides, and we will cover the ground in plastic to try to warm it up in the spring and then uncover it and have to dispose of all that plastic in the early summer. And we will bring in tons of people to harvest this wheat. And it is not an easy task, and yet we still insist on doing it. Right. So yeah, it is one of the interesting things about humans is we will go through a lot of trouble to eat the things we want to eat. And we will go to great lengths and a lot of resources just because like we cannot bring ourselves to eat the thing that we think is a little weird. (laughs) That's so true. And it's one of the reasons why as we look forward into the future and talk about like, hey, how are we going to deal with things like climate change? How are we going to deal with population growth? You know, some scientists have said, well, you know, like we have a lot of resources here that we have not tapped into. We could be eating different foods. We could be getting our protein from insects. We could be so much more efficient than we are, but it's going to be a long uphill battle because the thing that has to change is what we find acceptable to put in our mouths. And that is a hard horse to train. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you were talking about your Malabar spinach going crazy in your yard. I think we were talking about this over New Year's is that I have this eggplant that you can't kill this plant. It's been putting out eggplants for three years. And I just thought, oh, it's just so happy in that corner. Well, right behind it is an artichoke plant. And I have some issues with that artichoke plant because earwigs really like to get in between those leaves. And, you know, I'll go out there and I'll pick a beautiful artichoke bring it in the house, fill the sink with water so I can soak it. And all of a sudden it's like the Titanic going down with like 50 (laughs) earwigs (laughs) racing to the top. Oh my God. I just thought last year, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to let this plant die. And all of a sudden it came back and it's enormous. And again, you can't kill that plant either. So there is definitely stuff that you could eat. It's just... Do we want to go to the store and get artichokes that have been cleaned for us, you know, paid 250 for these large globe artichokes, 
or do we want to grow them and go through the trouble of getting all those earwigs out? And then with the eggplant, the connection is that it's not anything I ate when I was growing up. So it's been a little bit of an adventure. <laughs> I definitely don't hate the adventure, but having to find recipes and you know turning it into pulled pork sandwiches that are phenomenal or making nudie with them. But there's so many things that you can make with eggplants. You can even slice them thin and toast them and make bread replacement with them. But you have to go on that adventure or on that burdensome road, uh, you know, depending on how you look at it, how you look at cooking to figure out how to use the food that the earth is offering you rather than what you want the earth to offer you. And we know how, you know, we know how to make bread. So wheat is grown everywhere, but we don't exactly know what to do with 15 pounds of eggplant all of a sudden. And you've got to use it up really fast or give it away. Right. A lot of the plants that are agriculturally valuable are the ones that are easy to transport because you have to distribute them. And that is a thing to keep in mind when it comes to developing a plant for uses in agricultural, you know, like a, a cash crop. Corn happens to be really well suited for that, right? There's a lot of different varietals of corn and you can transport it pretty easily. It's pretty versatile. We have whole systems built around using the byproducts, you know, using the stalks, using the corn husks, like all those things we can use. So it's not even just a matter of like, you know, in our own, in our own yards, yeah, we can grow all kinds of fun stuff and use them. But when it comes to on a big scale, trying to utilize new plants and trying to change our tastes as a society, it's a whole system that you got to build and change to make that happen. And it does happen. Like we see it all the time where some new plant becomes like our bad plant. And then all of a sudden it's everywhere and we are using it all the time. So it does happen. It's just that if we want to move things forward a little quicker, we as a society are going to have to try to like make some conscious efforts here. <laughs> mm -hmm. We're going to have um, to be intentional about it. Yeah. Yeah. Intentional about instead of just like waiting for something to come up where it's like a fad and everyone decides it tastes good and we're going to start eating this thing, you know, really thinking through like, what do we think will be advantageous for us in the future? And how do we want to change our tastes and kind of start now with our younger generation, like getting them used to like, hey, this is going to be a thing in your future. Let's build some emotional connection with it. Let's, you know, make it your comfort dish, things like that. It's, it's a whole, these like system-wide changes that happen around plants don't happen in human lifetimes. They happen over many generations. So when it comes to working with plants, we often have to think forward many generations and like, what do we want? What do we want our kids' kids to be harvesting? It's like establishing that foundation for the future. Yeah. It's working with plants is weird because they're both so much smaller than you and so much bigger than you can ever be, right? Like you are working with little organisms that can live a year or live 5,000 years. Right, they're some of the oldest organisms on the planet. Yeah, so you aren't dabbling in small stuff. You are turning some big wheels and it is one of those things where you feel like a small little drop in a very big bucket. Mm -hmm. So it is, it's a really interesting field to be in. 
they're so much more complex often than what we think, you know, like just going back to the eggplant or tomatoes because they're from the belladonna family, like the leaves are poisonous, but the fruit itself is edible, but you can't eat a green eggplant because that's also poisonous. So there's different parts of plants. Some of them you can eat the root, the stem, the leaves and the flowers and the, and whatever fruit it's putting out. And some of them you have to pick and choose which part you're going to actually ingest. Right. Some of them are cassavas. Some of them are cassavas. Yeah, that's crazy. I know we're getting long on time here, but you mentioned not all plants are stationary. And that just kind of caught my attention. Um, We were at the Arboretum one night. You weren't exactly giving a tour. You you had a friend there and a bunch of people followed you, including me. (laughs) (laughs) Arboretum tours. Like, I just, I can't help myself now. Like, I've gotten to the point where if somebody says something around me, they're like, oh, that's interesting. I'm like, you do not know how interesting it is. Let me show you. (laughs) (laughs) That is so awesome. It feels like a I'm sure there's all of these posts everywhere. I was at the Arboretum. It was the luckiest night because this Dawson told me everything about this. There's people who are probably walking away just thrilled to death that you do that. Oh, and it gets worse. Like the more cups of wine I drink, the worse it gets. Like the less <laughs> the less self-control I have around making people my captive audience. Oh my God. That's so funny. Yeah. This one night when we were there, I don't even think you had a captive audience. I think you were kind of like trying to get away from us because we were like, oh, where's she going now? We need to follow her. (laughs) Like the drink table. That's where I'm heading. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) You were talking about this one plant. I want to call it like the monkey something plant. Oh, are you talking about the mousetrap tree with the sticky, the sticky pods? Yes, that was the craziest thing. So when it comes to, <laughs> when I say like plants, not all plants are stationary. Mm-hmm. What I I don't mean that like some of them actually grow legs or anything. But oh, actually, you know what? I take that back. But like when it comes to plant locomotion, there are several different forms. There's plants that grow towards areas like you might be phototropic, and they're moving. Uh, they're, they're actually like growing towards like something that they need, like light or water, right? That's a pretty common form of a plant moving, mm-hmm. but it's still rooted to a spot. It can't go somewhere. And then there's other plants that disperse themselves through different methods. And often that comes through seed dispersal and seed dispersal isn't like true locomotion. You're not like talking about like a single organism picking up and moving, but this is how plants like get to the places where they need to be to grow, right? Like blowing on a dandelion. Yeah. Yeah. They have different mechanisms to move their seeds around. And sometimes these mechanisms have evolved in such a way is that they move their seeds to more advantageous places, right? So some plants have evolved seeds that will grab onto an animal host because animals do move and they will follow the animal around because it's stuck in their fur or whatever. And then sometimes that animal might lay down or they'll brush up against something and that seed will eventually fall out of their fur or in humans' case, sometimes their clothes. And anywhere animals go, there's generally also like poop right? There's a, there's generally dung and there's nutrients because those animals are depositing those nutrients. So it helps for some plants to have these mechanisms. Um, the mousetrap tree is a really interesting tree because it has these seed pods that are pretty big and they have these super barbed little hooks on the ends of each of their little, they, they look very alien-esque. They have these like little, mm-hmm. uh, like arm 
worms coming off of the seed pods and they end in these like little round fingers. And some of the speculation around this mousetrap tree is not only might these seed pods grab onto large animals that will move them around, but sometimes they'll grab onto slightly smaller animals. And if you're a smaller animal like a mouse and this <laughs> pod gets caught on you, you're not going to be able to survive long with this seed pod stuck on you. It's almost mouse-sized, right? And you will eventually die with this seed pod attached to you. And they're sharp. I've had one stuck in my hand and when I pulled it off, it drew blood, right? So then you die, you the mouse die, and your body provides nutrients to the ground. And then your seed pod has a great little area to grow out of. <laughs> it's like the serial killer plant. It's just the serial killer plant murdering mice. <laughs> and so this is speculation around this plant. I don't think there's been any like documented cases of mouse trap trees actually trapping mice. <laughs> oh my god, it's crazy. Right when it comes to like looking at how plants survive and adapt, often people will go like, "Hey, it kind of looks like this plant." might be doing this and then years down the line it's actually doing that you know we just haven't had an opportunity to observe it oh my God. so i wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility there's plenty of cases of plants that kind of engage in this like almost like paracarnivory like they make it a little bit better for themselves by producing an environment where things might die <laughs> <laughs> You need to do an entire talk on that. I just think that that is hilarious. Like it's it's not the worst thing on earth for things to die around them. And so it's like, well, you know, if I have this super sticky sap that things die in, is that the worst thing on earth? No. Right. It's survival of the fittest, you know. There's too many mice running around here. (laughs) And we're laughing about it because it seems like, very like this is what I'm talking about when it comes like anthropomorphizing things that aren't conscious Mm -hmm. uh, because it's hilarious because we're like oh this plant is so small and (laughs) innocuous but it's actually evil like the plant's not evil the plant doesn't even know what it's doing right it doesn't know that it's catching and killing things and it doesn't know that that's going to be good for it down the line it just so happens that these mutations have been advantageous for other plants to grow uh, of the same species and then you get more and more and more of them so it's both like we have now built interest around this plant by assigning some morality to it right but also it's a plant it's a plant but it makes you understand like how this history and lore and myths get associated with these plants because somebody noticed this in the past i'm sure we're not the first ones to talk about this although you know most people here in California, or maybe even in the United States, I'm not sure where this plant is originally from. Most people probably haven't uh, seen Madagascar, but yes. Madagascar. <laughs> so most people have not seen a mouse trap plant. But somebody from Madagascar way back in the past may have, and right. they assigned this story to go with that because face it, like we don't like dead things, and so we associate badness with 
death. And so now this plant has some bad story associated with it. Yeah. And I actually think that this is a, um, you know, knowing what I know about the mousetrap plant, this is something that we as European botanists have, like of the, of the European tradition, have assigned to this plant. And I actually really don't know much about it when it comes to the general zeitgeist around this plant as it stands in Madagascar, because I don't live in Madagascar and I work out of English sources, you know? Right. And and this is one of the frustrations that I have when I communicate and talk about these plants. And it's like one of these things I really want to dive into is like I have such a limited scope about these plants that are from everywhere, you know, in Southern California, like I said, anything can grow here. We bring these plants in and we want to talk about them, but we don't really know about them. We as these American English speaking scientists and science communicators can only really peek in through these very small portholes. And without this cultural knowledge, we can only say so much. And as we learn more from the cultures in which these plants are indigenous to, and we learn more from those scientists, they already have the background knowledge that we don't. And so there's a lot that has to be left to the scientists who are living and working in the cultures in which these things evolve. You know, that's uh, one of the things where we are just getting to in the scientific community with the advent of like Google Translate, where we can really share information at a really efficient rate. And it's also one of those things that's sort of dying. Once upon a time, a person who was studying plants might speak a lot of Latin and they'd be able to communicate with somebody who also spoke a lot of Latin, even if they didn't speak their respective languages, right? They didn't share like German or whatever. And we are relying a lot on technology to help us along in that process. So we have this double-edged sword of kind of getting our feet underneath us as scientists in a new age and doing this science that is actually quite old. <laughs> like plant lore is a really old science and like plant study is a really old science. So yeah, that, this is like one of the things when I am a science communicator and I talk about plants and their lore from lots of different places. Unfortunately, I have a really big European bias in the information that I'm able to disseminate. And I am really looking forward to being able to grow into like these other sectors of the world. There's so much to learn from other cultures. And like you said, especially the ones where they know this plant much more intimately. And have a cultural background around it. You know, there's only so much you can do if you don't have that cultural background around this organism that you're trying to study. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, there was, uh, when I was in Costa Rica, I ran into some of the funniest people there. Like my cousin was a guide through their natural parks for a while. And so I would stop and go, what's this? And he's like, I don't know. And he, you know, like, a lot of the people there were telling me like they would make things up and I'm just going, that's terrible because, you know, like I actually want to know what this is. And if I walk away telling some dumb story, they thought it was funny. And I'm like, right. No. Well, like, this is like, oh, talk about frustration mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to science communication and like an education in general is, oh my God, the amount of things that we repeat that have just been like straight up made up. Right. And they can be written down in sources that you're like, this is a very legit source. I totally believe it. And it's not. Yeah. Like we give a lot, you know, how legit a source is, is very much culturally informed. 
And often we're like, oh, if it's in a book and a bunch of people have cited it, it's probably good. But you'd be surprised at how many things that are out there that are in a book and a ton of people have cited it. And it's just like literally like one person was like, yeah, that sounds right. And everyone's like, okay, we trust you, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it is like you have to double and triple and sometimes quadruple check things because oh gosh yes you know the first thing that you read or hear might not be the truth or it might be a a complete inaccurate assumption and but you know with the lore I remember there's a tree that has these spikes that grow all around it and there was a story about that spike if it cuts you or something, you would die. And they would tie people up for torture in the past to these trees. And they're actually right along the shoreline. So you're walking along these beaches and it's low tide and these trees aren't a problem. And then all of a sudden the tide comes in or a wave comes in and one of those branches hits you. And it's like, I'm going to die. I've got a spike in my leg. you know. But it's just interesting to hear the different lores, you know, because otherwise we would be looking at it and just going, oh, this is a tree with spikes and pretty flowers. Right. It looks weird. It looks cool. Like it's very picturesque. And Mm -hmm. otherwise you're like, oh, cool. Yeah, it is one thing that I have learned as a person who studies plants is my life was much quieter before I studied plants. (laughs) (laughs) Because once upon a time, I used to walk through a park and I would have nothing in my head except for what I was going to eat for lunch later that day. (laughs) And now... (laughs) And ever since, like, I'd say, like, I don't know, sophomore year of college, (laughs) I cannot go through any environment whatsoever (laughs) without, like, naming and thinking about every fucking little tiny green thing growing out of the ground. (laughs) Like, I'm just like, oh, look, that's a mallow. Some people call that a cheese whale mallow. You know, some people used to use mallow roots to, like, make sore throat medicine. But then also there was, like, this associated, like, mallow and, like, fae people. And that's why we get, like, the cheese whale mallow. And fae tradition ties back into European pagan traditions. There were these other European pagan traditions that now I start thinking about. And then I see, like, a dandelion. I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh my God. You're like the girl that talks to plants now, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's my reputation and I will never outlive it. No, Um, please don't. I love it. Like I could just sit here and talk to you all night about that. But I was going to bring up the fact that you tried to make dandelion wine and you said that didn't turn out well, but you did make some no. elder flower wine. Elderflower wine, yeah. So I've started some home brewing, especially like post pandemic. It started during the, you know, absolute throes of that first pandemic summer where there was uh, no food in the grocery stores, right. no one could go anywhere. And all was uncertain, so you didn't want to spend any money anyway, because like God knows what was going to happen in the next like few weeks, right? Right. That's why I have these veggie boxes in the backyard, because we were going to grow our own food. And that was all because <laughs> of this uncertainty of where is my food going to come from? Yeah. So I was like stuck at home a lot. And I was like, I really want booze, but I can't find <laughs> it anywhere. <laughs> um, I can't go anywhere to drink it. (laughs) Right. No gatherings. Yeah, no gatherings. You know, the stores are barren. And and even if I had access to it, I can't afford it. It, it, 
this whole summer, like I, I learned a lot of stuff about myself, right? We all did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I grew up in a very rural environment where we kind of had to do a lot of make do's, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of times where if you wanted something, you kind of had to make it for yourself. And I had learned a ton of skills as a kid, which I hadn't really employed since I had like moved away and gone to school and then subsequently moved to a city, right? And all of a sudden, like pandemic summer brought all of this stuff back to me. And I realized that I had these like weird, like little house in the prairie superpowers where I could like (laughs) make anything. Like I was just like, oh, you know, I'm out of butter. And I was like, I remember how to make butter. I'm going to go make butter. <laughs> like there was a, like a fine, a fine hair of a moment where I was in an absolute panic. Like, what am I going to do? And I was like, wait a minute, I've done this before. What do I mean? What am I going to do? I know how to do all this shit for myself. Yes. And so I, um, you know, I had that like slight moment of panic where I was like, oh God, I could use a drink right now. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't know how to make booze. I know how to do this. And I like went into my kitchen and I found a bottle of apple juice and I found a birthday balloon and I found some bread yeast and I made some apple cider. And I was like, well, that first one round was good. Let's do it again. And so I tried like lots and lots of different things. And then in the fall of 2020, I ended up moving back home. And that exact same day, we had a major fire, uh-huh. uh, which was absolutely devastating. And In the aftermath of that fire, there was not really a heck of a lot left, right? Generally, as a kid, we would do like a lot of apple picking. We had all these blackberries. You know, there was like currants in the forest. There was all kinds of greens and all kinds of stuff that I was used to like getting from the forest and like kind of like snacking on. And uh, there was a lot of ash and there were elderflowers. Like these elder trees were just like popping out of the ground. Like, and I, I want to say like daisies, but even the daisies weren't growing that well. <laughs> they were, they were just like, like, and I say weeds, <laughs> but again, <laughs> um, not a great description. They were just, you know, uh, within months after these fires had like blasted through, full on like six, seven foot elder bushes were growing out of the ground, and they were just dangling almost back down to the ground again with these heavy flowers and I was like well you know use what you got (laughs) so I made elderflower wine and found I really had a taste for it well it was delicious it's really light and flowery and um you know had a good sweetness to it yeah keep making it because it was really good (laughs) yeah uh, it turns out that elderflowers are pretty prolific after big fires. <laughs> wow. And if you are in a pinch, they do great for wine. Yeah, uh, there were a lot of things that I, uh, it was it was a time of self-discovery, I guess you could say. And I, I think that was true for a lot of people. Sophie and I made yogurt mm-hmm. in the oven, just under the oven light. And we also learned how to make cheese. So we made spreadable type cheese and we made a mozzarella ball and we were sewing. Sophie learned how to crochet. <laughs> it, was, it was, it was like going back to Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> yeah. And um, I was actually just talking to a friend today about this. Like, you know, we all had this like cottage core obsession because we were trying to like romanticize our panic into like, oh no, like this isn't 
this isn't scary. This is fun. Come on, guys. Aren't we having fun? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That is a great way to look at it because you're right. You know, everybody was, oh, look at all this great stuff I'm doing. But it was kind of a panicky time, wasn't it? Yeah. And we weren't doing it like, yes, we were kind of doing it because it was fun. And like, we did have the time to learn a few new skills and things like that. But like, we were also just doing it because we didn't have butter. Like we just didn't have it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And like, you know, we're very lucky. Yes, I realize like we had a, a lot of unrest going on around us. And like, you know, 2020 was a hot mess from top to bottom. But like in the oh end, my God. for real, we were, we were all the lucky ones who, you know, had like a place over our heads and we had pretty much food on our table every day. And we were able to take advantage of that time to think of it more as like self-discovery than, than anything else. And so, right. Yeah. When it comes down to it, like, yes, it was very silly and it was us just like trying to make light of a hard situation. It felt silly at the time, even like the whole time you're sitting there, like, you know, making yogurt, you're thinking, <laughs> you're like, God, I feel like Mary Antoinette, like, you know, hurting her little sheep <laughs> through her like fake village, playing pretend like, you know, I am actually a, a simple cottage witch <laughs> making my own flower booze. And I'm just not going to think about the larger context of what this means for me, because that is a scary thought. And this is not time for scary thoughts. <laughs> no. And, and it yeah. did, it did focus your mind away from things because like you got to pay attention, you know, you don't want your wine to turn to vinegar or <laughs> right. Yeah. You want your yogurt to actually have some body to it. Yeah. If you're not focused, it's not going to turn out right. And that's a great way to escape from that hot mess that was going on in 2020 for sure. Yeah. But I do think it's even in our privileged context of safety and, and food, it still kind of talks to like humans we are incredibly capable of making it in many situations, right? We are incredibly adaptable little critters who can find joy in just about anything. And in moments of crisis, we often lean back on these very primal needs to engage in the making of things and engage in the like raw ingredients of stuff, right? Right. And I, you know, kind of taking it back to the plant thing, I think that is why people are really interested in plants and their lore and not only what they tell us about the physical world around us, but how we interpret and conceive of our overall human environment. And it's because we have this like really primal need to understand the events around us and our environment around us via the things that grow in it. Like we need to, we need to be in and with and around and of the other living things around us to feel secure. They're pieces of the puzzle and we want them to all be together and we want we want to understand everything that is around us so that we have the whole picture. Yeah, we want the pieces to fit together. And uh and that's why, you know, the minute the world went to shit, we started like making bread <laughs> because yeah. We just needed to engage in that process and get as like close to understanding where food comes from as possible in the context of being stuck in our apartments. <laughs> right, uh, right. Because it gave us security. 
it made us feel like, oh, if I know how this bread is made, I'll be able to make it again and again and again, and everything will be okay. <laughs> There's that that sense of utility. And yeah, you know, just like you said, having those skills, the ability to do what you need to do to survive. Mm -hmm. And it's play, but it's practice. And I think that's something that little kids do too. You know, like a lot of times it looks like play and it is, but it's also learning a survival skill at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And in moments of uncertainty and in moments where we are insecure in the same way a kid is, they cannot control their environment around them. That is the method of control and the method of building security around us that we fall back on. We fall back into our environment and the understanding of it. So yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I kind of went into this field and why I find it so fascinating. It ties into a little bit of everything and it's it's all about our human story. It is. If people wanted to join any of the tours or the night hikes or uh, the talks that you do, how can they do that? Uh, well, I have my night hike series, which is at the LA Arboretum. You can check out the LA Arboretum website for that. And then, of course, at this moment, I do work at the Natural History Museum and at the La Brea Tar Pits. And I don't know if you'll ever actually see me there, but both are super interesting places to visit and uh, talking about building some connections between you and your environment and the history thereof. Those are both amazing places to start that process. I always ask this at the end, if there is one thing that you could share with the world, what would it be? Oh, Lordy, man, that is a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Learn about the living things that share your environment. And I mean, in my context, I mean plants (laughs) because that's my specialty, right? But it could mean a lot of things. It could mean the fellow people around you. It could mean the microorganisms that are part of your everyday life. But think about your learning process as you learning about your immediate environment and how that affects you. And then go on deep dives because as you dig deeper and deeper into your immediate environment and the things that share it with you, the organisms that share it with you. There is so much more there than you would suspect, right? As we learn about the plants that line the streets in our neighborhoods, as we learn about the indigenous plants and what they meant to the generations that came before us, as we learn about the foods that we eat and how they came about, we learn so much more about ourselves and how we fit into society. It just, it opens up so many doors and so many avenues and it ties you to that environment in a way that just chasing individual interest areas don't tie you to your environment. And there's really something to be said about making knowledge place-based. I think that real change often comes out of place-based knowledge. It helps you learn about your civic environment. It helps you learn how to improve it. And it just is emotionally good for you. Like we feel good when we belong somewhere. Provides that intimacy with your environment. Yeah. Like it's, it's helpful. It's good knowledge to have, but it also just is good for your soul. (laughs) It's good for your mental health. You feel so much more like you belong somewhere when you understand it than 
anything else will ever do for you. Um, and like I said, it makes your world loud. Like you can, you will, you can't <laughs> walk through a city park anymore and just be cool with enjoying the grass and the sunshine. <laughs> but it's so important to know why that grass and sunshine is there. Right. If it wasn't so dark right now, I literally would end this call and run outside with a magnifying glass and start looking at interesting stuff. But (laughs) I'm actually going to take your suggestion to heart. I mean, I'm already pretty curious about my environment, but probably not to the same level as you. I think everything that you provided is so valuable and not just valuable, but you did exactly what you set out to do, which is interpreting the world in a really interesting way, and especially the plant world in a very interesting, relatable, and exciting way that makes me want to learn more about this stuff and like, what have I been missing? And let me get out there and try to catch up with all of the excitement that's coming out of the ground. Yeah, there's endless things to know, like you will never get bored. There's so much to learn about the environment around us. So take some deep dives and learn about what's growing in your neighborhood and beyond. Find out what indigenous crops traditionally grow in your area and plant some in your backyard, not only for effortless gardening, but to try out what you've been missing. You never know, it might become your favorite food and it'll certainly help you connect more closely to the place in the world around you. The world of botany is fascinating. It connects people, places, and time long gone together. Growing a plant is growing knowledge. So check the show notes for links and please also take a moment to rate this episode. Your rating really does help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com, all at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T H E Q U A I N T R E L E Podcast. I am Sil Annan, the Queen Trail, and until next time, I wish you passion, grace, connection, belonging, elegance, and beauty. <laughs>